this week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, this field is continuing to grow. And I think once we we have a little more help from our urology colleagues, and there's been a lot of guys out there that are really trying to help push this forward and uh, make it even more mainstream for our population, because the population wants it. I can't tell you how many times you do a procedure on a guy who's either had a previous uh, transurethral procedure and it didn't turn out how he wanted it. And now he's having great results. And, you know, they're upset that this was never even given as an option to them. Um, and same thing as fibroid embolization, right? We just need to do a much better job with patient awareness and making, you know, letting people know that this is out there and educating our urology colleagues as well, because they're a big factor in this. And just for overall, for our patients, making sure that they're getting the appropriate procedure as well. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and minimally invasive. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is www.backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Let us know how we can make this podcast a better resource for our endovascular community. And we'll do our best to make that happen. I'd like to take a quick minute to thank our sponsor, Boston Scientific. Today's Backtable podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific Interventional Oncology and Embolization Division. That's IOE. Boston Scientific IOE is an international provider of medical devices for the interventional radiologist. Boston Scientific's goal is to become interventional radiology's leading partner by enabling and developing minimally invasive procedures for the detection, diagnosis, treatment, and palliation of cancer and other non-cancer diseases. Boston Scientific IOE has recently launched the TrueSelect TM 2-French microcatheter. This selective microcatheter is specifically designed to access small and tortuous peripheral vasculature to deliver all 018 coils, embolics up to 700 microns, and Y90 products, including Therosphere. It also has the first ever 175cm length microcatheter ideal for retail access. Visit bostonscientific.com or contact your local Boston Scientific sales rep for more information on the True Select 2 French microcatheter to learn what it can do for you. So today we're going to discuss some details around access site selection for specifically prostate artery embolization, and we'll get into some of the details of that procedure. To help us with the discussion, we're going to have Dr. Blake Parsons. Blake is an interventional radiology physician based out of Oklahoma. He's been on the show a few times before. You can find him on old episodes. Um, first one he did was episode 69, where we talk about retrograde pedal access, and episode 129, where we kind of go into some of the business tips and tricks for the OBL and ASCs for the entrepreneurial-minded uh, interventional radiologists and vascular surgeons out there. Blake, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, appreciate it as always. All right. So for those who have not caught you on some earlier episodes, where you just tell uh, people a little bit about your background and what kind of practice you have? Yeah. Um, so I'm, a, as you said, a vascular and interventional radiologist. Um, I'm based here in Oklahoma City. Uh, we have a hybrid outpatient, so OBL slash ASC practice called Cardiovascular Health Clinic um, that was formed about five years ago. So we do the mass majority of our uh, procedures out of this facility. Uh, just from a training standpoint, you know, I did my uh, fellowship at Medical College of Wisconsin, uh, graduated from there and started my practice here in 2017. So been out a little over four years now. 
Okay, nice. And as far as your current practice, uh, what does it look like in terms of what kind of procedures are you guys doing and specifically like how much of that is prostate artery embolization? Yeah, so I would say the vast majority of my outpatient practice is going to be, we do a, a, a lot of peripheral vascular work. So I do a lot of peripheral arterial disease. Uh, in this part of the country, like others, we see a ton of diabetic foot wounds. And um, so we have a lot of CLIs. Um, I also do all the venous work for our, our group. So a lot of acute and chronic DVTs as well as superficial. Um, and then embolization wise, you know, uterine fibroid embolizations, prostate embolizations. And then we actually do quite a bit of pelvic congestion as well here, just because, you know, we're in a unique practice. If you've listened to any of our previous podcasts, they've had, we have used to be one vascular surgeon. Now we have, we've hired another one. So we have two and we have another one on the way. So there'll be three, three total vascular surgeons with me. And then we currently have four interventional cardiologists. So several of our interventional cardiologists see a lot of women with POTS and a lot of them have subsequently also have uh, pelvic congestion syndrome. And we have several uh, gynecologists in town that refer us for pelvic congestion syndrome. So those are the, those are the, the main makeups of our outpatient procedures here at ROBL. So as far as prostate artery embolizations, is, when did you get started with it? How many are you doing? Uh, maybe in a given month? Eight yeah. And, okay. Yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, exactly. So I started right out the gate. Uh, well, I guess I had to wait a little bit. It was FDA approved in January 2018. So I did training. I actually went out and hung out with uh, Ari Isaacson as well as uh, Bagla prior. And then uh, we just kind of hit the ground running in January of 2018. I've probably done around, I think the last numbers, somewhere around 350 to 400. So we do almost three to four a week, typically. Um, so quite a few. I'd say the mass majority of ours is from self-referral. We do have quite a few primary care physicians as well that believe in it and uh, have seen the outcomes and send us quite a few patients. And then I, and I we do, I have a group of urologists that we work with that uh, we send patients back and forth. So if someone I don't think is a candidate, then I'll send them to them for further evaluation and other treatment options. And then uh, vice versa, if they have someone with, you know, a monster prostate or something they don't feel comfortable or they're on anticoagulation, you know, recent coronary stenting, that type of stuff, then, or poor anesthesia candidate, then they will uh, refer to me as well. So... I don't know about the audience, but I, I was like fairly shocked by that number. I didn't, I didn't think you were to come in near as high as like 350 or 400. Uh, that's an incredible number. That's like a, a great referral system. So take me a little bit about how like the prostate artery embolization practice kind of developed. Like was, I mean, it seems like you guys have a, a steady referral now, but how, how was it in the beginning? It still kind of runs the same way as it has from day one. A lot of it is outreach marketing. And I will tell you that your audience is older men, right? And they're about the only ones that still read the paper. So we do a lot of uh, advertisement in the paper um, that honestly just exploded the business because you got a lot of guys, you know, out there um, that have been suffering for years and they know the surgical options and they would just rather, you know, suffer with getting up four times a night than they would uh, undergoing uh, some type of transurethral procedure. So, you know, it hits home and these guys are still, <laughs> they're still reading the paper every day and, and they see us. And so a lot of our self-referrals come from that. And then the others just getting out and hitting the streets and talking to your primary care. You know, we have a good relationship already with a lot of primary care doctors just because of 
my group and my partners and all the cardiovascular stuff that we already did for them. So this was, they trusted us. And then this has just kind of been an add-on. Okay. All right. So let's kind of get into like the, the meat of today's topic where we're going to talk a little bit about like access site selection and for some of the, the younger uh, audience or for some of the tradee, uh, trainees, will you kind of discuss um, just in broad strokes, uh, femoral versus radial and specifically when it comes to this procedure? Exactly. So now that, you know, it used to, there was kind of a hard stop on how tall someone was, sure. especially for men, it became very difficult. And then Boston came out with True Select recently, which goes out to 175 centimeters. So that definitely helped. You know, for us, here and how I kind of choose back and forth a little bit. I honestly probably look at it more on a weight base (laughs) being in Oklahoma to some degree. And then it it still height plays a part of it. Now, the other issue we'll get into with just in kind of uh, the product I use while I'm doing it and from a radial approach is you are, there is some limitations just because of wire, wire options from a radial standpoint because of the length of the microcatheter. Um, But I will tell you, I do way more femoral than I do uh, radial. Okay. All right. So before we get too much into uh, uh, radial versus femoral, can you talk a little bit more about uh, your radial technique? We can start out just talking about like who is a suitable candidate for radial artery access. Yeah. So obviously I do a barbeau on everybody that I'm going to do a radial stick on. From an ultrasound standpoint, you know, I, I pretty much go from... The standard, you know, it needs to probably at least be two millimeters. Um, I'm going to use a four or five slender sheath is what I use for access. Everything obviously ultrasound guided. So four or five French standard cocktail, heparin, nitro, verapamil. So 3,000 of heparin, 2.5 of verapamil. And then 200 to 300 of nitro, just kind of depending on their pressures. And then I typically use a glide wire or you can even use a baby J glide to uh, make your way down. Um, I typically use a glide cath, just a standard 45 angle to be able to get down into the pelvis. But that's my typical kind of initial setup to get down. Blake, let me ask you this. Whenever you're doing uh, radial access, how's the patient positioned? Like, do you have them uh, like arm mm-hmm. out or down by the side? Yeah, so I do them the exact same way I do my fibroids. So I do their arms straight out to the side. How we okay. set up our room is then I put the monitors right behind their arms. So they're, the monitors are just to the left of the patient's head. Okay, so I'm actually looking across their arm, like kind of like looking parallel to them, but I'm to their side. I'm not actually looking towards the patient. I'm just looking across the arm. And then I put my, we have a large room, so this is why I can do this. But, um, and then I have a table, a long table that I put out to the end of their arm. And so I can run all my wires and everything down this long table. Okay, nice. Instead of having to have their arm to the side, run it down the bed. Yeah, I, I think some people like that. I, I'm with you in terms of radial access. I like the arm. Uh, I guess it's abducted where the arm's out. And I kind of mm-hmm. stand in between that corner of like mm-hmm. where their armpit is basically. And then exactly. we do, I, I can't actually get my big monitors in front of me, but we have a set of slave monitors and, mm-hmm. and you know, that works out pretty well. So height wise, um, true select aside, which does have the new longer uh, length mitrocatheter. Um, do you have a, a rough cutoff to when, like, if they're if a patient's above a certain height, you're just like, oh, I'm not going to mess with the radial access. So for fibroids of a standard length, I'll say five ten. If mm-hmm. the for the new True Select six one, okay, probably because I mean the problem is you're going to run into still is, you know, and that gets into the patient's age. Obviously, you start getting into the 80s; these patients' arteries get extremely torturous. 
um, you're going to not only do you lose pushability and things like that, but you're, you're going to eat up a lot of catheter link and then try to get down. And then a lot of times if you have to go and get a pudendal, you know, a pudendal branch, you still could come up short. And so that's always the, the risk of going uh, radial on someone that's a little taller. Okay. Fair. And, uh, what is your five French catheter that you're getting down with? Just a glide. I use a long glide cath. So 150. Oh, so it's 150. Yeah. And how long's the microcatheter? So it, from the wrist, I'll use the true select 175. Okay. Gotcha. And is that the same with your fibroids? Yeah. Uh, actually I'll use a shorter, I'll do a 120 and then use the 150 microcatheter okay. because most of the women I'm doing on are under 510. Sure, sure. Gotcha. Whenever you're hooking up, uh, like, do you hook up a Tui Boris to the back of your five French catheter? I do, except for prostates. I won't, because just in case I need that extra couple yeah. centimeters. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, yeah. So that was my question. Uh, I actually understand that we did a podcast with uh, Aaron Fishman, and there's actually like a shorter adapter that you can use. Like, I think the Tui Boris, it's around six or seven centimeters that you lose with your microcatheter. Mm -hmm. And there's another shorter adapter that's closer, like two CMs. Okay. I never, I never got the name from, but I have to, we'll have to grab that. Yeah. No, he's the radial master, so he'll know. Sure, sure. <laughs> All right. So prostate artery embolization, radial versus femoral. If you have your druthers, if you're like, have the perfect patient who shows up, you know, he's 55, no atherosclerotic disease. He's five, six. So height's not going to be an issue. What's your preferred access? Is it uh, radial or femoral? It's still at this juncture, it's femoral. I'm, pro I'm faster to do it femoral than I am to do it radial. Okay. And the likelihood you're going to be able to seal that patient on your way out, you know, and so from a bleeding risk standpoint, you're, there's not much different. We, we're pretty aggressive at our place. So if we do an angio, say an angio seal, we start setting them up, you know, within 30 minutes, you know, which is not crazy, but we get them up pretty quick. I mean, they're out the door within two hours usually. All right. So, um, when do you, when is radial a better fit for you? Like, is there, are there circumstances where you start out femoral and then you have to, I wouldn't say bail, but then, uh, turn to radial? Yeah. So I think for me personally, radial has a, a great utilization, um, in guys with torturous iliac arteries, right? Because trying to get up and over and have support from a femoral access is tough. You're going to end up having to use a 25 centimeter sheath and go up and over because what's going to happen is you're going to get right into the beginning of the prostate artery and you have no pushability. Next thing you know, everything's falling out and it falls back up into the aorta and then you're angry. So it's to save you the trouble of getting up and over, changing out your sheaths and everything, you know, coming from above, you're, it's, it's much easier. Now, the caveat to that you got to think of is from higher up. So as these patients are getting older and they're 80, not only are their iliac arteries getting torturous, but their thoracic aorta is as well. And their takeoff to that left subclavian artery can be pretty sharp. And so then your issue is, are you losing length because of their tortuosity? And are you losing pushability due to that steep turn trying to get back down the uh, thoracic aorta? So that's just something you got to keep in mind as, as well. How about using comb beam CT with, well, I'll, I'll just uh, back up and ask you, do you use uh, comb beam CT for your prostate artery embolizations? No, and I never have, but I'm in an OBL, so we don't have any, we're, that's too fancy for us. <laughs> no, we actually have a fix, we have a fixed unit that we use. We just don't have comb beam uh, CT on it. But in my training, obviously, I know Ari loves it, uh, uses a ton. It's shown the obvious benefits of it. And then I'm probably more on the bagless side where yeah. I do it all without. And 
I've always done it without. So, you know, I feel confident with what I'm embolizing and when where branches are going after, you know, it, you do 50, you, it takes you about 50 that you're not, you know, sweating to death in there. <laughs> but, uh, once you finally get a, a, a pretty decent hang of the anatomy, then, uh, it, it's not too bad. Yeah. So that was, what I was going to ask you, like, when did you kind of hit that threshold after you had about 50 cases under your belt that all of a sudden things start to click and, you know, you started having, uh, you know, it's like pattern recognition. Then all of a sudden, like the prostate artery just kind of jumps out at you rather than you having to like go through and identify vessels. Exactly. I tell people you're big. So you're going to start off your first couple are going to take two and a half, three hours. And you're going to be like, this is not worth it. <laughs> you know, in the OBL space, you're like, oh my gosh, I could do something else. And, you know, for the payment and the amount of time you're utilizing all this, this is, I'm crazy. Um, but what you'll see is exactly is the more you get under your belt. I always tell people when they come talk or come visit or watch us do cases, I, I tell them 50. That's kind of my number just because I, it felt like, like I did 50 before I did, you know, I, I started feeling confident right off the bat. The biggest thing of cutting down your time is you do that first iliac angiogram and boom, you already know exactly where it's coming off of. You're not you know, searching. And then now you're, you know, selecting random arteries that look like they could be prosthetic arteries. And you're, sure. that's what chews up all of your time. And then kind of the other thing that prolongs your case and that you have to get confident with is bead size and collaterals. So knowing, feeling comfortable about what you can embolize, knowing it's probably going somewhere else. And is it going to cause a problem or the beads big enough that they're going to likely get stuck in the, you know, these little small collaterals and you don't really have to worry about them? Or is it, you know, are you going to get some ischemia to the rectum? Or are you going to get based to the penile artery? You know, these are all the things you, you're worrying about when you're first 50 of them. And I think that's the biggest thing where you kind of become, I wouldn't say lax, but you get more confident about the size of the arteries you're looking at, where they're going, um, their inflows, outflows. Um, do you need to coil off all these brain, you know, those types of things, because those are what add time to your case. Sure. So one thing that I wanted to touch on in terms of helping identify the prostate artery, do you have a go-to obliquity or uh, positioning the II to where it, you know, I understand that maybe each patient is different, but like your standard obliquity and maybe cranial caudal tilt to give you your best shot at seeing the takeoff of the prostate artery? So I do it for some reason every time. No, Cranial caudal, that's even, but I do 48 degrees. I don't know how I came up with 48 degrees. I think it just did it. But the beginning was like, it feels lucky, so I'm sticking with it. But pretty steep, you know, I think like Bagel will tell you, he just goes as steep as his C-arm will let him go. So, you know, and some and that works the mass majority of the time, but there'll be diff, definitely times because all these, you know, guys, anatomy is different so that you actually need to go contralateral or straight AP to be able to see the takeoff of it. So, um, and that does happen, um, not infrequently, but I always start off with ipsilateral 45 to 48 degrees. All right. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to just clarify for the audience. So if you're selecting the left prostatic artery, you go LAO 48 degrees, no cranial Correct. caudal tilt, right? Correct. All right. So after this, this is one of the things that I think is like very intimidating for interventional radiologists who are trying to get into prostate artery embolization is you see a lot written about non-target embolization and things you have to worry about uh, with shunts, with um, uh, non-target embolization to like either a rectal or a penile branch. Can you 
talk a little bit about that, but in the context of like what size beads you use, because you kind of mentioned it earlier mm -hmm. that there's sometimes like a size particle that you can use that can make you feel comfortable that <laughs> maybe if you're not exclusively within the perfect prostate artery that you don't have to worry about like indoor get damage if you're having some non-target embolization. So I primarily use 300 to 500. You know, after the paper came out showing there's no real difference, then I was like, yay, let's stay with the three to five. So I feel sure. so much safer. Now, I will, and that being said, if I get into a prosthetic artery and it's a 100% prosthetic blush, I can't see anything, then I will go down a, a little bit in size and do an initial kind of embolization to get a little distal and then backpack that, so to speak, with three to fives. Now, these guys... On the post-operative standpoint, you know, they're definitely going to have more post-op ischemic um, discomfort slash prostatitis, mm -hmm. the smaller beads you use. But I haven't seen really a major difference in outcomes other than patients being uncomfortable at post-op for three to four days of using smaller versus larger beads. So pretty much just with the with the data that's out there, I, I haven't noticed a big difference in patient satisfaction, IPSS score improvement, all that with um, using just strictly using three to fives versus uh, using smaller okay. duration of good results. Yeah. Okay. How about the technique where you do a more proximal embolization with uh, the larger beads and then, you know, then you advance mm -hmm. like the microcatheter as far distal as possible and then do another embolization. I think that's described Doc's kind of escaping. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So I tried to do that at the very beginning. And then now I basically just select as distal as possible right mm -hmm. out the gate. And then I, I will, I do give nitro. I typically will give about a hundred of nitro to try to plump them up some. And then, you know, the shunts are always changing. So I typically give a little bit of uh, embolic and then I'll take another run. Just to make sure, because, you know, you can have inflow from the pudendal artery, right? And then all of a sudden you start embolizing things and now it's dumping into the pudendal instead of coming from the pudendal. So I like to, I kind of do an initial uh, little short embolization and then do a contrast run just to make sure everything still looks good. And then I finish off. And so, and as long as I'm starting to see pretty good pruning and everything, like say I use small beads at first, then I'll... I'll make sure I got some good pruning and then I'll use the three to fives to really pack it in. What's your endpoint like as far as uh, stasis, stasis. complete yeah. stasis? Yeah, three to five. Now, and I will say on older guys, I know this has kind of been a new, a relatively newer topic that's been taboo, but of coiling the artery on, on the way out. I believe uh, I actually watched a, a video conference about this specifically and more and more guys are starting to do it, you know, especially older guy, if I have a guy in his eighties that had hard arteries to get into in the first place, mm -hmm. A, the likelihood is if they have early recurrence, it's not from their prosthetic artery. It's probably from some collateral branch. And I don't want to get, I don't want to have to go back in there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's kind of the view amongst everyone else that does it too. So I'll just go ahead and I just, I'll, I'll, I'll use micro coils, you know, like a three by two a micro nest or whatever, and I'll, I'll pack them in at the end, pretty distal. And I don't do that for everybody. For younger guys, I find that sure. I don't just in case, you know, they, they make it five years and they start having recurrence of symptoms and they want to do the same procedure again. Okay. Well then we'll go back and do it. But 
you know, um, for my, uh, the older population, I have found myself starting to do more coin. And that's been really kind of in the last couple months that I've started doing that. Now the, it's, it's interesting too, cause their ischemic pain is greater. And those guys I've noticed, um, that you end up go ahead and coiling as well. Interesting. Um, and you said that was uh, described in a paper. We'll have to, I'll have to get the name of that paper so we can. Uh, well, and then Fishman, I think, has started, don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure I sure. got something from him not too long ago where they have, he has started coiling more as well. But okay. anyway, I know that's been like taboo forever and don't shoot me, but that's kind of what <laughs> <laughs> the, the big no-no in embolization world, uh, but to jail yourself out from getting distal again. But uh yeah, for the, like I said, for that specific population, that's yeah. kind of what I started doing. That's right. That's the out, like for the appropriate patient. <laughs> it works. Okay. So going back a little bit to uh, radial and femoral. So one of the big advantages, and we mentioned it for uh, radial access, is the fact that you have good pushability, but also like selection of like your internal iliacs is a little bit more straightforward in terms of there's not like an up and over process. And then one of the things that gets discussed a little bit is like if you're accessing right groin, and you are femoral, what does it look like uh, as far as uh, for you to access the ipsilateral, so right at right common femoral access, accessing the uh, right internal iliac artery? Like how do you hook in then, and then sure. where do you go micro? So what I do, what I started doing probably two years ago is I always, so obviously I always access the right common femoral, I shouldn't say always, but typically. Yeah, sure, sure. Right common femoral artery, I go up and over, I do the left side first. So I get a so from a femoral approach, I do a glide uh, cobra cath. I go with a glide wire, go up and over and select the left internal, do my shots, treat that side. With the wire over, I take the glide cath out and then I put a five French sauce in and I put that over, form it over the aortic bifurcation. And then I actually then select the ipsilateral side and come down, puff my way down. And I use that sauce catheter to select the ipsilateral internal iliac artery. And then I do my shot through that sauce catheter. So then I do my right obliquity at 45 to 48 degrees ipsilateral with that sauce catheter. And then once I've done that, then I go in with my micro. Okay. And so that that might be where I see like one of the disadvantages to femoral is that, you know, you're, I guess when you're hooked in with the sauce, mm -hmm. uh, essentially when you decide to go micro, you're really like just a couple centimeters beyond the takeoff of mm -hmm. the right internal iliac. Does that ever... You know, how how uh, big of a hurdle is that to overcome in terms of then going from, you know, internal iliac to, you know, anterior division mm -hmm. to prostate artery? To be honest, most people's internal iliac arteries are not that long. Like, and what's weird, and I, I'm sure there's some paper out there that someone smarter than me has figured out, but I have found that for some reason the right side, and it probably is from an anatomical perspective, but the right internal iliac artery is typically shorter than the left and uh from an anatomic standpoint and length of the common trunk so usually when i get a micro in there i'm only a centimeter or two away from the bifurcation and so um to have, i haven't had any any issues with trying to do that because trying to get like say do a waltman's loop and come up and down or use a specialty catheter you can definitely do that but then you've got even more risk of when you start to push you could knock that Waltman's loop, could start to push knuckle up into the uh, aorta. I will say just from my own personal experience, uh, I've done the Waltman loop uh, mm -hmm. a couple of times for prostate artery embolizations. It's never ended well. You know, like I'm able to get pretty close to the osteum of the prostate artery, but, uh, you know, the downside of the Waltman loop is just as soon as you're right where you want to be, 
Like, you know, you go to advance your microcatheter just a hair more. And then all of a sudden, like you start unforming your loop and you can see your five French catheter starting to back out. And it, so, you know, from, from my experience, I've, I've kind of given up on that technique, which I, I used to use for, uh, when I was doing uh, fibroids, I would sometimes do a Waltman, mm -hmm. but I, I think like I'm, I'm actually in your camp now. It's just, it's just easy to hook in with a sauce and then just go micro from right there. I agree. Yeah. The, the sauce is very hard to knuckle out of that internal. Yep. Yeah, You're going to buckle your microcatheter way before you ever flop that sauce catheter out. Yeah, totally agree. So talking about some ways to identify the uh, prostatic arteries, uh, maybe a little when you're early on. So, you know, you you feel like maybe a little bit like you want to try this procedure. Did you use uh, a Foley catheter? Like, so I've seen some things described as far as like some crutches that can kind of help you. Like some people will place a Foley and you can use that Foley balloon to use as like a local landmark is where your prostate blush should be. Uh, I've seen some people put BB markers on the base of the penis for them to help like maybe identify a penile branch a little bit better. Do you have anything like that that was helpful for you early on? No, so I I never used a Foley just because I figured that's part of the reason these patients don't sure. want to have transurethral. So I, I never used a Foley. What I will say is the prostate primarily, let's say a, a 60, uh, gram prostate, right? 30s normal. So enlarged, but not crazy. 60 to 80, something like that. It's always going to typically be, if you're straight, no caudal, no uh, cephalad tilt, it's going to be right in the pubic symphysis, kind of on the cephalad um, margin of it. That's kind of where you're focused at. And so when you're doing your run, you know, let's just say from your, we're, we're doing the left side, we've got a left oblique. Uh, uh, 48 degrees, whatever, we're, we're taking a look. I kind of go by the rule. I know there's all these uh, papers defining how often the prostate artery comes off of it. Oh, that's, I can't remember any of the naming systems. So I just go in rules of like 25. So, you know, 25% of the time, it's going to be off the vesicular trunk. 25% of the time, it's obturator. 25% 25 of the time, it's essentially pudendal. And then the other 25% of the time, you don't know where the hell it is, and you just got to find it. But you're going to mainly, a lot of times, if standards kind of straightforward anatomy, it's going to, you know, it's going to be kind of curly, kind of pigtail looking, and it typically crosses your obturator artery. When you see that and then you select it, then I will go back AP and take a shot, a dedicated shot into that prosthetic artery. And then you should see primarily horizontal arteries. You shouldn't see arteries running north to south. North to south is going to be rectum. You're going to, you know, and you should see when you, if you push enough in there through your run, you're going to see a blush in the rectum anyway, or blush at the base of the penis. And you know that you've got stuff going the wrong direction. It should be pretty much well-defined. And, and when you push enough contrast in there, you can actually see that whole left hemisphere of the prostate light up for you. And, and you know, it's prostate artery. Okay. Yeah, I think that helps early on when, uh, one, taking a look at a couple other, like what prosthetic blush looks like. But mm -hmm. if you've ever read any cross-sectional, uh, to me, when I did my first case and I saw, um, like, actually, when I did my first case solo and then, I, you know, I was so worried about seeing the prosthetic artery, it did kind of jump out at me in a way. I'll also want to highlight something for the audience. And, and you mentioned it, that the prostate artery, uh, many times, like when you're at that steep of an obliquity, will cross the obturator. Can you talk about um, how you identify the obturator and um, that kind of crossing anatomy? Exactly. So your obturator is typically going to run pretty straight north-south, and then it's going to have basically an upside-down Y 
on the bottom of it. So it's going to fork. And uh, that's, it's, it's going to be there now. Typically it comes off the anterior division, but they can come off your superior gluteal and other, you know, kind of funky locations, but typically it's going to be off the anterior division. And then you're going to see your pudendal obviously kind of make like almost like a, a boomerang type of, of anatomy where it goes down to towards the hip and then it's going to come back down towards the base of the penis. And that prosthetic artery typically comes off like in between those two arteries. And then you're going to see these kind of pigtail curly cues, and that's going to come back across towards midline across that obturator artery. So this first came onto my radar. There was a uh, lecture at SIR. I think it was 2018 for those people who have the digital video library. And there was a guy, I think he was out of Yale, but he basically did a show and tell where he talked about like this, like identifying the obturator, identifying the pedendal. And then he's like, really, like you only have a handful of arteries left and talked about how the prostatic artery in like 98% of patients would cross the obturator artery. It was a great lecture. And, and, you know, he did a ton of pattern recognition. It really helped Mm -hmm. me out early on. And it's exactly what you're describing right now. No, definitely. I mean, when you first start off, that that's it. That's the hardest part of cutting down your time and feeling confident is pattern recognition. It takes seeing lots of different anatomy lots of runs um to be able to just know it just kind of starts to jump out at you when you do that when you do that iliac shot and when you're first starting off i mean there are tons of papers out there there's numerous anatomy papers with great pictures and just go through those you know and and let that kind of ingrain in your mind so when you do see the you start to see shots that you're taking you're like oh yeah i've seen this or something similar to this you know in a picture so you feel a little bit more confident Sure. Can you talk a little bit about your time uh, with uh, Dr. Bagla and Dr. Isaacson in terms of either shadowing them? Like how how long did you go out and check out their shops? Yes. So for both, I just did a course. I think maybe for Ari, I went out with like uh, with Tarumo and did like a Tarumo course. And I think we did two or three cases that day. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other one, I think I went out with probably Boston or somebody. And we went out to uh, Bagla's OBL. And, you know, he knocks them out. I mean, I don't even know how many he's done at this point, a ton. And we, you know, we sat down and watched, you know, three, four of them as well. And I had already started doing some of them. So I kind of had a little bit of an idea. And I did Bagla's after I did Ari's. And I went to stream somewhere in between or around that as well. Like, I think it was the first one they had. So I kind of had a good idea, which was great. Because by the time that I went to Bagla's, I kind I knew what I was looking at and what I was looking for. And then I could really just kind of dig into him about some of these kind of minor details about things that he's looking for, how he embolizes, how much, you know, is he trying to get in or what's his mixtures, all these type of things. So, okay. But, but I didn't do any kind of like prolonged, like, oh, I spent a week with, with one of them. Gotcha. I think there's a lot of value in like having done a couple of cases on your own, then to go out and spend oh, time with some, yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, that was pretty uh, smart move on your part. So let's talk a little bit about, so you're done with the case. Uh, talk about closure for radial and then closure for femoral and for just the, the trainees out there, talk about like how that's different and uh, advantages and, and cons of both. Yes. Yeah, so from a radial standpoint, um, we just TR band everyone and we have our TR band protocol. So the, obviously the bonus is that patient gets to sit up right away and then you go to the bathroom and we can, you know, let them go to the bathroom. Our femoral, like I said, we're still pretty aggressive, but I would, I do try to, AG seal is my typical closure device. So I usually use a six French AG seal on everyone out to, to verify for the 
young folks that are listening or med students thinking about going in, you know, we're obviously getting ultrasound guided access into the femoral artery. So I evaluate the whole artery for calcium, plaque, what anything that could possibly cause me an issue when deploying the system. And then obviously I do a groin run uh, before sealing to make sure that it is okay, adequate size, no large plaque in there that could peel off and cause me an issue. And then, and then do the sealant. And like I said, we start sitting them up though, pretty quick. So 30 minutes, and then we get them out pretty quick as, as well. Usually about two hours they're, they're out the door. That's pretty good. As far as uh, your post-op recovery period for radial versus femoral, are the radial uh, patients still sticking around about two hours? Yes. Or, okay. So every- essentially say, yeah, essentially for us, that's why since we don't have like a six hour protocol that they have to hang around in, there's not a whole lot of difference from the, the patient's standpoint. I even satisfaction, most of the guys, most of them had heart casts just because they're age and underlying things. And they're just happy that they can get in without having to lay flat for six hours. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, most of them have been through ephemeral access and are, are happy to, to get out, uh, in a shorter amount of time for sure. Yeah. And I think that just to highlight another point is that, you know, the foundation, a lot of times we talk a lot about closure, what can go right, what can go wrong, but really like closure really starts with your access and, you know, good access, picking not just the common femoral artery, but the right spot on the common femoral can sometimes save you so much oh, yeah. headache on the back end. I, I think that's underappreciated. Sometimes that doesn't get talked about enough. Well, and that's what, right, IR 101. And so, and people at, at MCW trained me and they harped on it for an entire year. Every time you got is as minute as you thought it may be, but no seeing your needle tip, knowing exactly where you're entering the artery, because say there's a plaque that's kind of on the distal aspect, the common femoral will access above it. So that way that you can have potentially a good spot to be able to do a seal. You didn't just jail yourself from uh, being able to seal a patient and, and for other reasons, obviously too, but for sure. Yeah, that's definitely one-on-one. Yeah. I also feel like if you're in the uh, limb salvage business, probably selecting like, you know, getting very, very meticulous about your vascular access site becomes increasingly important, I would imagine, in, in patients who you're working on for peripheral arterial disease. Oh, so, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Good well, I mean, and we're, we're well, I shouldn't say we all, ma- the majority of people, I guess, listening to this podcast are IR guys. So, I mean, that's what we pride ourselves on, right, is our ultrasound guided skills. So that's right. Those are things that we just, we, we you got to have, you got to have yeah. down. So one of the other roads I wanted to go down was, so your patients are out the door. uh, It's a two-hour recovery. Before they leave, is there any kind of pain or either, either, uh, I was thinking either pain regimen, anti-inflammatories, maybe steroids. Is is there anything you do either for pre or post-op that uh, helps with uh, like, uh, you know, getting that transition, getting these guys out the door? So uh, they all get IV antibiotics, but other than that, preoperatively nothing. Um, as long as they don't have diabetes, so I don't give them anything in my facility post-op. I write, so the three scripts I give everybody, I write them a Medrol dose pack, and I write them antibiotic, um, and I write them peridium, just in case they get some dysuria. So I'll write them, you can buy peridium over the counter, but I can prescribe it 200 milligrams TID, so it's stronger. But I give them those three, those three things. I would say it's not really that maybe 15 to 20% of guys have significant post-op pain. I'd still say the mass majority of the guys I do don't even know I did anything other than they have a Band-Aid wherever I stuck them, you know. But the guys that are going to have more issues are typically in my 
in my practice, I've seen are the guys with bigger glands. So like the other day I did one that was a 250 gram gland that looked like a cantaloupe. And wow. he definitely had a lot of post-stop discomfort. I've only had to write actual pain medicine like Norco, Percocet, whatever, twice. But otherwise, no, I typically don't. You know, if they're having some issues with discomfort too, ibuprofen, just taking ibuprofen scheduled. But for the most part, no, no issues. That By the time that Medrol dose pack starts to kick in, it really cools down any inflammation, prostatitis. And then the dysuria, uh, the peridium really does help. They'll all call you because they think they're dying because it turns their urine an orangey red color. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, can, I always get called about that they're uh, peeing blood, but no, it's, it's just the uh, peridium. Sure. As far as expectation management with your patients, when do you kind of paint a picture or, or what is the picture that you paint as far as recovery in terms of when you start to see relief, how much relief do you get? Is it graded? Is, is it instantaneous? You know? So I will tell you that I've seen results all over the board. So when I do my clinic evaluation, see consultation, when I see them for the first time, I tell them it's pretty much two weeks to two to three months. Everyone's different. I've got guys that come in at two weeks that where they pee like they're 40 again. And I've got guys that takes every bit of two to three months before they really start seeing improvement. So everyone's different. You know, some of it I think is based on gland size, but uh, I can't really put my finger exactly on why it is. I've got guys that swear they pee better the next day. You know, obviously I'm sure there's some type of uh, placebo effect to it as well, but that's why we did the sham study to prove that that's, uh, <laughs> that's not all, all true. But yeah, no, it's, it's all over the map. So I tell them, I'm like, look, you're going to see me in two weeks. If you're not seeing improvement, you're going to be upset. I'm not going to be upset. I'm only seeing a G at two weeks because I just want to make sure where access is okay. You don't have any post-operative complications, that type of thing. Yeah. So that gets to my other question about post-operative care is uh, you mentioned that you see them two weeks after the procedure. And then do you see them again at a certain time point? Yeah. So I see them at two weeks and then I see them at two months. And every single time I see them, they fill out their IPSS score. And and I tell them, I, you know, they're oh. Us old guys, like guys right in general, we don't want to go to the doctor. And then you add a couple of years to us, we definitely don't want to go to the doctor. So filling out more paperwork just irritates them. But I make them fill out that paperwork. And I tell them the reason why is because I want to track, right? It starts, you start getting three, six months out a year. You forget kind of how bad things were at the beginning. So this is a great way to also be able to show your patients, say, hey, when you came in, you had an IPS test of 29. And now you're down to a... 12 or an eight or whatever, you know, like, then they're like, oh yeah, I mean, this is great. Yeah. I knew I was doing what I was doing well, but this is awesome. Something, something about metrics that can like uh, tap into the psyche, which helps people feel better. And, and there's something about this amnesia effect where like you get to be a year out and you start feeling better and it's hard to remember how it felt when you were miserable. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Rounding out this uh, show, were there any articles or advice um, for people interested in prostate artery embolization that you found particularly helpful when you were starting out? Um, you know, it doesn't have to be articles. It could have been, um, you know, uh, like you mentioned, the stream course. It could be anything that you found that like was really like helped jumpstart this procedure for you and was like a big unlock. Yeah, anything and everything. You know, everyone's different, but I think the more exposure you can have, the better, right? Because it's pelvic anatomy, it's crazy. So everyone's different, you know. So starting out, I mean, all the lectures anybody had at SIR meetings, I would watch everyone. I still watch them, you know, and the 
stream meetings. There's tons of meetings out there now. There's tons of information. There's tons of papers. Immersing yourself in as much of it as you can, because everyone, a lot of people are going to say the same stuff, but in every, in every one of them, you can kind of catch something different. That's like, oh yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Or, oh, I like this from this guy. I like this from this other guy. You know, and you can kind of tailor it to some degree, kind of what you like, what you think works for you. How does it make you be able to progress, you know, your progression through the case is easier. Those Anything to make you comfortable and confident to some degree of getting through the case and uh, having a good outcome for the patient. And uh, one more thing I wanted to ask about is, as far as um, those interested in, in learning more about radial access, uh, one of the things I wanted to know is, do you, do you consider radial access, like for prostate artery embolizations, is that like a must-have uh, skill set? If you're looking to get into this procedures or if you're just, or if you're locked into femoral, can you basically get this procedure done with femoral? No, a hundred percent. By no means, um, do you have to do, have a femoral, do you have to have a radial access in your pocket? You can do this from the femoral all day, every day. Now, like we talked about earlier, the more torturous they are, the, you know, I'd start off with some probably younger age, if you can, patients, just because like I said, 75 to 80 is kind of the magic number when all of a sudden things start getting a lot more torturous, their arteries are more calcified. It just becomes much more of a challenge to get up and over and to have the stone. But um, no, you definitely don't have to have radial artery access or that uh, skill set to be able to, to do prostate artery embolization. I don't know if you would agree with this statement, but I've always found that like if, if you're just getting in a prostate order embolization, it, it's probably not uh, the first case you want to do if you're still um, new. Is like you if if your comfort level is with femoral, then for your first prostate order embolization, go femoral. But for radial cases, good ones to start out on, like good chip shots, at least what I consider good practice cases for radial access are UFIs. You know, the anatomy is a little bit more straightforward. Patients tend to be shorter and, you know, your target vessel is you know, pretty, uh, typically pretty easy to access. Definitely. And just the getting, so this is even taking a, even a step further back. If you're really, you know, don't have much radial experience. And if you do any diagnostic, like arterial work, even doing it from the radial, just working on your setup, your access, your sheets, your cocktails, what you like, your wiring catheters to be able to select the descending thoracic aorta and get down into it. All that can benefit you as well. Yeah, for sure. All right, uh, Blake, any closing thoughts on prostate artery embolization? You know, this field is continuing to grow. And I think once we we have a little more help from our urology colleagues, and which is always, a, uh, it's been a task. And there's been a lot of guys out there that are really trying to help push this forward and uh, make it even more mainstream for our population because the population wants it. I can't tell you how many times you do a procedure on a guy who's either had a previous you know, uh, or procedure and it didn't turn out how he wanted it. And now he's having great results and, you know, they're upset that this was never even given as an option to them. Um, and the same thing as fibroid embolization, right? We just need to do a much better job with prostate artery embolization than we did or are doing with fibroid embolization in patient awareness and making, you know, letting people know that this is out there and educating our urology colleagues as well, because, um, they're a big factor in this. And just for overall, you know, for our patients, making sure that they're getting the appropriate procedure as well. 
That's right. You know, and I just got to commend you. I mean, having 350 and 400 under your belt, I mean, you know, uh, congratulations to you and your practice on, you know, championing this procedure and bringing it to the forefront. So, man, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and well, uh, to talk today. Oh, thanks as always. We always love uh, being on and uh, anytime more than happy. All right. Nice. So to our audience, thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, but want more, please check out the show notes to this episode. Those are usually uh, about a week delayed um, following the podcast uh, when we you know put this out, but those are going to be able to be found at www.backtable.com. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting a lot of value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. This helps us in so many different ways. We read every one of them. We love the feedback. That about wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back Table Podcast. Mm-hmm.